0: Reading the word of the Lord from the book of Daniel, chapter 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought and that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords Your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have brought in before me to read this writing and have made known To make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, He kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many, Tikal, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tikal, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple, A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old.
1: This is God's word. And so we say, thanks be to God. To warn someone is to love them. If someone is in terrible danger, to fail to warn them is to fail to love them. Uh, Before deciding to pursue vocational ministry, uh, I was actually strongly considering a career in medicine. Uh, I decided not to pursue that career for several different reasons, but one of them is that I didn't like having to hurt people in order to heal them. Like doing surgery, giving injections, having to give really bad news about heart disease or cancer. I didn't want to do any of that. Of course, now I'm a pastor and I have to tell people really hard things all the time. Not just about their bodies, but about their souls. So that didn't work out so good for me. But one of my favorite procedures that I got to watch while shadowing different doctors was heart catheterizations. Where they insert a wire up the femoral artery to look at the heart in order to you know, detect heart blockages or put in a stent if you had to. And my grandfather actually had, my late grandfather, had like 17 of these. I think he held the record at that hospital for the most heart catheterization. So I was really interested in the procedure. But imagine that you had one of these and that as the doctor looked at your heart, he saw blockages. He knew they would be fatal if left unaddressed. But after the appointment, he didn't really mention anything to you. You know, stick with the Debbie cakes, buddy. You're doing doing great. Would that be loving? Or would that be malpractice? Warning of a real danger is a real kindness. And we usually reserve our sternest warnings for those who we love the most about things that would threaten them the most. Parents with young kids, the boiling pot on the stove. Maybe later it's the busy street. After that, maybe it's foolish friends, or after that, bad investments. And so our passage today, even though it is a strong warning for us, is an extension of God's kindness to us. Daniel chapter 5 comes on the heels of, believe it or not, Daniel chapter 4, where King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, which we looked at last week, his public humiliation, he's publicly humiliated, In order to rid him of his pride and to display God's power over even the mightiest of people. And so, chapter four ended like this, if you remember from last week. Nebuchadnezzar says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So Nebuchadnezzar's story was meant to serve as a warning to us, a warning to stop our pride and self-worship in its tracks. But what happens if you fail to heed those warnings? Well, Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5 is a chapter about what happens if you continually fail to heed the warnings of God in your life. So this chapter begins with a new king, King Belshazzar. And before we get into the meat of the story, I actually just want to do a brief historical sidebar here, not just for the sake of history, but this one actually is kind of interesting. Because up until the mid-late 1800s, world history knew of no one in ancient Babylon called King Belshazzar. His only mention was here in the book of Daniel, chapter 5. And so as you can imagine, for many, many years... um, literary critics or critics of the Bible uh, would would take issue with the book of Daniel because it couldn't even match up, you know, the historical kings with what we know from other ancient history sources. No one had ever heard of Belshazzar. So, i.e., you know, the extension is Daniel is historically unreliable. Well, that all changed in the mid-1800s. Several cuneiform cylinders like these were found in Iraq by a British explorer named J.G. Taylor. And what he found written on these cuneiform cylinders is that after some good old political backstabbing and aristocratic bargaining, a man named Nabonidus became king of Babylon a few years after Nebuchadnezzar died. And you can read about the Nabonidus cylinders online. You can even go see them if you wanted at the British Museum of History if you can ever travel again. Um, And recorded on one of these cylinders though, there's a prayer for the long life and health of Nabonidus' oldest son. And his name was Belshazzar. And what we also learned from these artifacts is that Nabonidus at some point left Babylon to go live in modern day Saudi Arabia. And he left his son, Belshazzar, as ruler over Babylon. Learn all this from these cuneiform cylinders that they discovered. And so this makes complete sense. Did you notice in the story when Belshazzar is offering a reward for whoever can read the writing on the wall? What's he offer? He offers you can be the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Why third? Didn't make any sense until you find these cylinders. And it turns out that's the best he could offer. Because Belshazzar was number two. His father, Nabonidus, was number one. And I first learned about the Nabonidus cylinders uh, a few years ago from a pastor friend named Charles Hook. And Dr. Hook, before being a pastor, was a dentist, believe it or not. And um, he always had a poem for everything. I mean, everything. He had memorized poetry his whole life. And so at any random occasion, he would just have a poem to spout off. And he had a poem about uh, the Nabonidus cylinder. So I'm going to quote it to you now. It's called The Anvil. And it says, Last eve I paused beside the blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. Then looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, he said, with twinkling eye. The anvil... (laughs) Where's the hammers out, you know? And so I thought, the anvil of God's word. For ages skeptic blows have beat upon. Yet though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed, the hammers gone. So I share this tidbit of information about um, the Nabonidus cylinders and Belshazzar, um, not just to talk about history, but to try to give you some confidence that when the book of Daniel speaks, it speaks accurately. It speaks with certainty, yes, about world history, but also about the human heart. So let's return to Belshazzar and his wild party. So he throws this feast in his palace, even though it's likely that by this time the Persian army is making their way towards Babylon. So perhaps this was a feast to praise and appease the Babylonian gods and to ask for their aid in coming battle. Or maybe it was a feast to strengthen the morale as they all boasted in Babylon's supposedly impenetrable walls. And the city of Babylon apparently had walls that were as high as 300 feet. That's like 30 stories high and wide enough for two chariots to pass each other along the top of the walls. You know you've built a cool city when you can ride chariots, you know, around the the top of the city. That's pretty awesome. And then the mighty Euphrates River flowed through the middle of the city which meant there was enough water and room in the city to grow crops so that the city couldn't be besieged. They couldn't starve the people out through siege works. So in his secure fortress, the wine begins to flow heavy, and the Babylonian party ran out of solo cups. And then Belshazzar remembers they have more cups in storage. And so he causes his guys to bring in some cups that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. And it's, it's interesting, actually, the book of Daniel opens by mentioning these silver and gold utensils and goblets that were taken from the temple. If you go back to Daniel chapter one, it's pretty much the intro of the book. Right after it says, the Lord gave the king of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, he took with him some of the vessels of the house of God and brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So it's like the opening scene from the movie of Daniel would be Nebuchadnezzar's guys raiding all this stuff, gold and silver goblets from the temple. And you don't hear from them until we come back around to this story. And as an expression of his superiority and dominance over Israel's God, he's like, hey, remember those things we took from that temple in Jerusalem? Wasn't that awesome? Let's get them out. And he raises his cup to praise the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So he uses God's sacred vessels from the temple to make a toast to the Babylonian gods. And it's at that moment that a really creepy thing happens. Fingers of a human hand appear and begin to write on the wall. This is one of the most famous scenes in scripture. Uh, It's where we get the common saying, you know, the writings on the wall when kind of the end is coming for, for someone. This is where that saying comes from. And Rembrandt actually did a famous painting of this scene. Maybe you've seen that one before. But in the story, the king grows pale. It says his limbs gave way. Some translators would render that as he lost control of his lower parts. So either he sat down, he took a seat or he wet his seat or both, but either way, sobriety finds him quickly and he begins yelling, yelling for his wise men to come in and tell him what is going on. But as you might expect, as has been the pattern through the book of Daniel, the wise men strike out again and they're unable to help Belshazzar um, figure out what's, what's going on and the last ounce of color drains from his face. But it's interesting, Belshazzar has a selective memory about Israel's God. The gold and silver goblets were not the only things that were taken from Jerusalem. There was some human resources that were taken from Jerusalem as well. Daniel and his friends, and he seems to have forgotten all about them. And so the turn of the story comes when the queen, likely the queen mother, reminds Belshazzar of how Daniel had formerly served his predecessors, and uh, he's able to interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve problems. So the king calls for Daniel. And he offers him this same reward. Third highest in the kingdom, the gold chain around your neck, all this stuff. But Daniel's response to the king contains the lesson for this story. And so it bears reading again. Let me read Daniel's response to King Belshazzar once more. So Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, And his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly. He was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. This is what happened in chapter four. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom he will. And you, his son or his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you, your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and Parsine. This is the interpretation of the matter. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tikel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So Belshazzar gets more than he asked for here. He gets an interpretation and a history lesson as well. He gets the full explanation, so there's no question as to why he is losing his kingship and even his very life. He is proud. And so God will cut him down a notch or 20. And there's part of you, you know, when you read this story, it's kind of nice to see Belshazzar, the Babylonian tyrant, get his, right? Especially if you were to sympathetically read this with the original audience, Jewish exiles, there's a sense of justice and poetic irony to the spoiled tyrant groveling under the word of an old Jewish exile, and finally under God's judgment. Except I don't think this story is included in the Bible to warn Belshazzar, but to warn us. Because Belshazzar's downfall can so easily become ours. We can praise the gods of success and wealth and power and comfort and pleasure and entertainment but the God in whose hand is our breath and before whom are all of our ways we so easily forget. Belshazzar's sin is the core sin of all humanity. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament would sum it up like this in Romans 1, although they knew God, although we knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. And so Belshazzar serves to us as a tragic example of what happens when your life begins to revolve around what you have, what you can achieve, what you can earn, and when that becomes your God and you begin to use all of the beautiful, wonderful resources that God has given you to spend yourself and go after that. Tim Keller um, gives a definition of an idol from his book, Counterfeit Gods, that I think is helpful for us to hear. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you, what only God is meant to give you. So Belshazzar's idols weren't just gold, silver, iron, bronze But it's what the gold and the silver and the iron and the bronze could give him. Security, comfort, self-sufficiency, independence, and power. And so Belshazzar imagined himself, because of these things, totally untouchable. Hemmed in by walls of wood and stone. Protected with soldiers with armor and weapons of iron and bronze. While drinking the night away in goblets of gold and silver. But there is no wall that he can put up. There is no wall that we can put up that can withstand God's judgment. Pastor Brian Chappell says, those secure in the world, those who are unrepentant before God, will ultimately be identified, weighed, and judged. God says to every person, beware. Beware because there is no human wall so high, no human fortress so secure no activity so hidden that it can protect sin from the wrath of God. Belshazzar was not the last to believe that his sin was protected by a wall of human achievement. Tiger Woods, Pete Rose, Bernie Madoff, Michael Milken, Ted Haggard, Jimmy Swaggert the names change. The message does not. Mine, Mine, Tekel, Paris. But the words do not accomplish their purpose if we do not think that they have some application to us as well. We can read the writing on the wall of real life. Power, position, prestige, peer approval, wealth, wisdom, wonderful potential, amazing accomplishments, even esteem in the church will not shield us from an all-powerful, all-knowing, holy God who brings every dark thing to light and judges sin. The names change, the situations vary, but the consequences do not. The judgment of God is sure. God's word still whispers, "Mene, mene, tekel, peris," meaning counted, counted, weighed out, and found wanting. God had counted and weighed out Belshazzar's life and found him a lightweight. And his idols, as they are prone to do, do not rescue him in his time of need. While he's in his palace draining his wine, the Persian army was draining away the Euphrates River, history tells us, so it would be shallow enough for them to wade in under the city and take over mighty Babylon in a single night. And just like that, the mightiest man on earth falls. Now, the worst part of all this is Belshazzar should have known better. Remember, Daniel tells him, hey, remember Nebuchadnezzar who came before you? He was proud too, but God in his kindness cut him down. And you, his son, Belshazzar, you knew all this. This was not a secret to you. Everyone in Babylon knew about this. And yet you did not humble yourself but you went so far as to raise up the sacred vessels of God in defiance of him and to worship your own idols. So Belshazzar is contrasted to Nebuchadnezzar and he comes out wanting. What was the difference between these two kings? Both mighty, both proud. What was the difference? One was broken. One was not. Brokenness is what makes all the difference. Could you say that you have a heart of brokenness over the areas of pride, idolatry, self-worship, and sin that remain in all of our lives? Could you be described as broken over those things? Does it really bother you when you forget and neglect the God in whose hand is your breath? And you give your heart and soul to created things rather than the creator. Or do you have, you know, laissez-faire, laid back, God will forgive me anyway attitude about your sin and try to stay safe behind walls of religious complacency. You see, Belshazzar's great failure here is that he did not listen to God's warnings expressed through the lives of others that came before him. And this is meant to teach us And I know this could fit on a fortune cookie, and you know this saying, but a wise man learns from his own mistakes, but a wiser man learns from the mistakes of others. I mean, how many lives have you watched plunge into ruin? Celebrities, church leaders, even your own friends, you watch themselves ruin themselves as they give themselves over to their pride, to their idols of pleasure or success, only to self-destruct in the end. It seems like these days the body count is piling up too high. But how many more do you need to watch to get the point? That to live for lesser gods and to forsake the living God is to court disaster. Belshazzar should have known better. But herein lies an opportunity to self-reflect. If anything, we have far more knowledge of God and his ways than Belshazzar did. We hear it preached often. If you're part of this church, you're you're here, you're always hearing God's word. But mere knowledge is no antidote to idolatry or a buffer against consequences. We as the church, the scripture calls us God's vessels. His sacred vessels aren't cups. They're us. They're his children. Our very bodies are set apart for his use. We know, unlike Belshazzar, how much it cost God to forgive us of our sin. And so often, we callously fill our lives up with it and then cite the blood of Jesus as some sort of hex against any consequences that God might bring into our lives. But where does it say in Scripture that God will not discipline his children when they wander into sin? or that he would withhold any sort of consequences just because. It says the opposite. We should expect that God will allow logical, painful consequences to enter our lives so that we might abandon our sin and return to him. Don't you see? He reserves his sternest warnings for those he loves most about which things could harm you the most. Our own pride and idolatry, our own heart blockages, these will prove terminal if not removed. And like Belshazzar, we cannot plead ignorance and we ignore the warning of this passage to our own peril. Uh, During the 2004 catastrophic tsunami in Thailand, there was a family vacationing at My Cow, K-H-A-O, My Cow Beach. And there was a 10 year old girl there, Tilly Smith, who had just learned two weeks before that um, in her geography class about tsunamis. And when she saw the water at the beach begin to recede rapidly, she started to pester her parents over and over. We've got to get off the beach. We've got to get off the beach. We, We need to get everyone off the beach. And even as they tried to calm her down, she grew more and more frantic and started screaming about a tsunami coming. Well, as you might do with your kid, They brought her back to the hotel room, tried to calm her down, but she would not quit. So the dad, in an act to appease her as much as anything, went and talked to a security guard and said, I know this sounds crazy, but my daughter thinks there's a tsunami coming. The security guard went out, took a look at the beach, and decided maybe she's right. And they called for everyone to get off the beach and take refuge in a higher floor of the hotel When that tsunami hit Thailand, almost a quarter of a million people died, but everyone on Tilly's beach, as far as we know, survived. Tilly's dad summed it up like this. Tilly, what if we had not listened to your warnings? You see, God loves you enough to warn you. He will hurt you if it means healing you. More than that, he himself will be hurt in order to heal us. And ultimately, he has faced the tsunami of sin's judgment in our place. More than the writing on the wall, the cross of Christ is to us the ultimate writing of God's loving warning. As we see Christ on the cross, forsaken for us, we see him forsaken and accursed in our place, bearing a judgment we deserved. On the cross, Jesus poured out his soul to death. And Isaiah 53 says, he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You see, Jesus was numbered, counted, weighed, judged as a transgressor so that transgressors could be counted and numbered among the righteous. This is God's most costly warning to us. Jesus on the cross illustrates in most graphic detail what a God forsaken life looks like. So, if there's anything that should serve as an antidote to our pride and self worship, it is the crucifixion of the Son of God in our place. And it bears thinking on day after day after day. Last week, Larry gave us a few practical suggestions. For how to daily humble ourselves before God. If you haven't started to put these into practice, start now. Let me remind you of them. It was simply daily praying for mercy at the beginning of your day. You would ask God's mercy on you as you begin your day. Second, you would daily give thanks to God for all his kindness and good gifts that he's brought into your life. It humbles you to give thanks. Third, Daily confession, confession of sin. That at perhaps at the end of each day we would review our day and confess our sins before God, and most importantly to meditate on the cross. When we do that, there is nothing that will kill your pride more than thinking about the Son of God crucified in your place. If these things are not a daily practice for you, begin soon. And even just beyond ourselves as we begin, um, you know, thinking about reconnecting or reengaging with one another and with our community as life returns to some sense of normalcy, we have to think about how to issue loving warnings to those in our lives who are on a crash course because of a self-centered life. This applies to our relationships and friendships with one another and especially with our neighbors and friends who do not know Christ. Because to warn is to love. Will you love one another enough to warn each other when you see a life headed for self-implosion? Will you warn your neighbors and friends who are far from Christ? Will you lovingly warn them where the outcome of a life without God ends? Warning someone is never fun. I don't like it. But it is always love. And this likely means we must begin to grieve. We must begin to grieve our own sin. We must begin to grieve the trajectory of our friends and neighbors who are far from God. That their condition and ours would break our hearts. That we could have brokenness. So may God help us to grieve. And in our grieving, may he help us warn The Apostle Paul summed up what he was all about in life when he said in Colossians 1, Jesus, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Church, we must love one another enough to warn each other when we are captivated with our own idols of gold, silver, iron, bronze, wood, and stone and we must love our neighbors enough to warn them too. But the cross of Christ does not just serve as a warning, but also as an invitation for us. Because Belshazzar's feast has nothing on the eternal feast of Christ. Christ longs to bring joy into your life, not judgment. (laughs) He's the king of joy, and his eternal feast is incomparable. He longs to bring joy to your life. He's the kind of king who would give up his throne so that you could join his feast, the only feast that will truly satisfy and will truly last. Let's pray together. So God, these words for us are your kindness. They are your stern warning for us that we not go on unchecked in our self-worship and in our pride, living life without reference to you, merely for our own pleasure and advancement. And so we pray that through the work of your own spirit in our consciences, through the lives of others whom we have seen ruined by this trajectory, and most of all through your word today, would we have ears to receive your warning? Give us soft, tender, and broken hearts about these things. Give us hearts that grieve for the state of others and that grieve enough to warn. In all this, we thank you for your love because it's most fully expressed here for us in what Jesus did in giving himself to warn us and to invite us to a feast that never ends. We pray all this through him. Amen.